0: Thank you, Mitchell and Carol Ann. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. If you are in 1st through 6th grade and you would like to slip out, I think there will be a music rehearsal for Easter. So if you'd like to slip out 1st through 6th graders uh, as part of the children's church service, uh, the music portion of that I think will be a rehearsal for the Easter service. The rest of us are turning to Isaiah chapter 6 Last week I brought a message to you on the first half of Isaiah chapter 6 explaining the concept of the holiness of God What is the holiness of God it can be explained in a twofold way it is purity from sin it is Moral purity, because that which is moral is that which reflect God, reflects God's character. Therefore, that which is immoral is that which goes against God's character. And so it is his, his, the absolute purity of his essence, but it also, in his holiness, his holiness reflects his separateness. It reflects his position as the creator and your position as the creature. It's the separateness of God because of his absolute purity. It is something that is totally set apart, totally different. I defined it for you last week as God's distinct otherness. It's the way in which he is different than anything else, anyone else, and in every way is he this way. And it's this holiness that drives us to understand That the number one thing that we need in our church today is to reclaim the holiness of God, the separateness of God, the distinctness of God. Rather than to think God as the big man upstairs or the divine Santa Claus or some sort of heavenly vending machine that we go to to make requests and God gives us things, we need to reclaim this concept of the holiness and splendor of God His holy justice, His holy wisdom, His holy power, His holy truth. Because His holiness is the umbrella attribute through which every other attribute should be viewed. Let's read the entirety of Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. We'll begin in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 13. And then I'd like to finish. The concept that we saw last week was God's holiness on display... And what, we like to, what I'd like to show you this morning is our response. Since God's holiness is this, what is our response to this holiness? Isaiah chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And the Lord said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed." Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or oak, whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. Lord God, would you give us grace this morning to see the truth of your word as we with unveiled eyes behold the glory of the Lord and thus are changed. In your name we pray, amen. The historical context of this passage is the reign of King Uzziah. As Uzziah restored the glory of God's people and was used in establishing a culture on Israel of holiness and righteousness as we saw last week. Second Chronicles chapter 26 records the account of Uzziah and recognizing that he reigned for 52 years in the nation of Israel. He was discontent with his position as king. He tried to step in and be a priest as well and thus was judged. And in pride, Uzziah coveted what he did not have rather than recognizing what God had given him. He stepped outside of God's boundaries rather than saying, okay, God, you've allowed me to be here and you've given me this responsibility. I'm content with that. He stepped outside of God's boundaries. He was judged for it. He was struck with leprosy. And thus he ended his reign not as the king who brought righteousness and morality and reigned for 52 years, but the end of his reign very sadly was Uzziah was a leper. Once he died, his son Jotham reigned in his place. There was cultural upheaval. What's going to happen now? The king is gone. He's either about to die or he had just died. We don't know which, but we do know that this was in the, key, the year in which King Uzziah died. And God gives Isaiah a vision as he pulls back the, the curtain into the heavenly throne room. As he sees God, he says, I saw the Lord upon his throne, high and lifted up. In the time where his king on this earth had died, God revealed to Isaiah the king of kings and lord of lords on his throne in heaven. Because earthly leaders will come and go, but God remains on his throne forever. And so he saw the Lord, Adonai, his king, his master, high and lifted up. Just like in Mark 1, when the heavens were rent open at the baptism of Jesus, and in Acts 7, where the heavens were rent open for Stephen just before he was stoned. And in Revelation chapter 4, when the Apostle John is given a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, so Isaiah is granted a glimpse to see the Lord sitting on a throne. He's high and lifted up, not just in a spatial way, meaning that Isaiah had to strain his neck in order to see him, but in a way that shows that he reigns over all, that he is totally separate from all humanity, that there is nothing that Isaiah could do to get up to that point, that in order for Isaiah to have a conversation with that high being, that high being would have to come down to him, that Isaiah could not go up to God. The train of his robe filled the temple, meaning that his glory filled every place. The hem of his robe, was of the king's robe, was often richly decorated. It had a distinct border, the train, which would identify his position as king, even sometimes reveal the conquest that he had had in battle. And thus the hem of the garment from the throne room of heaven fills the entire temple, showing how glorious and wonderful and separate and amazing God is. And then we see heaven's response as these fiery beings Sing back and forth, holy, 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 as the courts of heaven echo with the holiness of God. These seraphim, not even able to look at the pure glory of God, covering their face with two wings, not able to stand on the altar or in the presence of God because it was holy ground, thus they cover their feet with the other two wings coming to do the unbiddened will of God in any way as his messenger, thus with two wings flying to accomplish his purposes. They call him the Lord of hosts, that he is the Lord of the armies of heaven, and that the whole earth is full of his glory, recognizing that his glory echoes into this world now. But one day, the armies of heaven will come, led by the king of hosts, To conquer sin forever. The earth then responds in verse 4. That was my whole message last week in about four minutes. And so, if you weren't here last week, you can go and listen to more detail in the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 6. We're looking at the responses to God's holiness. Let's look at the earth's response in verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Not just did the doors of the temple begin to shake, but the fasteners and the actual foundations, the doorposts, which were anchored into the foundations of the building, those begin to shake and quake as the building shook to its very foundations because God's glory was filling the house. And so we see throughout the Scriptures that when god's presence fills a place it's forever different second chronicles chapter 5 as the temple is dedicated it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison second chronicles 5:13 when the song was raised the trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments praise the lord he is good his steadfast love endures forever the house was filled with a cloud, with God's presence in Second Chronicles chapter 5. So much so that the priest could not even stand to minister in the house of God anymore because the presence of God filled it. Exodus chapter 40, when they erected the tabernacle, Moses finished the work as the Lord directed him. In verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, so much so that Moses was not even able to enter. We see Mount Sinai. When God descends on Mount Sinai with with quaking and thunder and lightning, wherever God's presence enters into a place, that place cannot help but be changed, friend. And if God's presence has entered your life as God's temple on this earth through salvation, you cannot help but be changed. The earth's response was to shake to be filled with smoke, to be filled with the presence of the Lord. Look at the prophet's response in verse five. Isaiah gives testimony, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I love the, I think I mentioned last week, I love the King James word there, undone. I am coming to pieces. I am destitute. There are four parts to his response here. We'll look at each one of them individually. The first one is the pronouncement on himself of woe. Woe is me. This is not just a cry of despair, friend. Maybe you have read this verse before and you see him as in utter despair of seeing, saying, oh my, I can't believe I get to, to, to see this. Woe is me. But if you're reading this as a Jew, you would see so much more because not is he, not only is he crying out in despair, he is actually announcing and pronouncing judgment on himself. He's prophesying against himself as a prophet. He's saying, "Woe is me, I am under God's judgment." Just a few chapters later, Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah says this, for they look on their faces, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They are under God's judgment. Those who are in this position when confronted with God's holiness have no option but to be pronounced as judged before God. He goes on, tell the righteous that it shall be with them, for they shall eat of the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. We see this pattern elsewhere in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 21, verse 29. Woe to you, Moab, you are undone. Same wording there. O people of Chemosh, he has made his sons fugitives and the daughters captives to an Amorite king Sihon. You have been judged by the Lord. Ezekiel 16, 23 and 24, and after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord. You built yourselves a vaulted chamber and made yourselves a lofty place in every square, meaning idols, idols. and and altars to false gods. Hosea chapter 7, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak evil lies against me. This pronouncement of a woe is a pronouncement of judgment of of condemnation of saying there is no hope for this person in our culture today we would use the word damned d-a-m-n-e-d of saying this there is no hope for this person that person is condemned he's saying woe is me friend you don't only see this in the Old Testament you see it in the New Testament as well Listen carefully to Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 23, in the words of Jesus. Jesus says the following, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and then when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Serious? Very serious. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple... He's bound by his oath. You blind fools. This is the words of Jesus. Which is greater, the gold or he who has made the gold sacred? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done. Woe, woe. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You're destined for hell. So when Isaiah looks at himself and he says, Woe is me. Friend, he's not just crying out in despair, he's looking at God's glory and saying, If that's what it takes to enter into the presence of God, I have no hope. If if the seraphs can't even look, and the seraphs can't even stand, woe is me. His pronouncement of condemnation on himself. Friend, anytime that God's glory is compared with humans, the only response is to recognize your sinful condition to recognize that all humans deserve hell to be to recognize that we are rightly judged by God as needing mercy woe is me for i am lost literally i am i am made to be silent i am destroyed i am cut off i have come apart. I am undone. I, have, I am exposed. As though I was hiding in the dark and then the lights come on. You ever caught your child in the act of doing something that they know they're not supposed to do? And it's the shock and the pull back and then the look like I have no hope to try to excuse this at all. Because I've been totally exposed. That's Isaiah. I'm condemned before God because I have nowhere to hide. I am unzipped. I am undone. I am, I am unraveled before a holy God. Is this because Isaiah... Was a human being? Is it because he was such a bad person? I mean, who was this guy? He must have been a murderer. No, friend, he was a prophet of God who recognized that even one sin condemns you before a holy God. Because he realized that his sin had separated him from God. He goes on to explain what makes him undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. See, that sounds really weird. What is this going on with lips in Isaiah? There are two options that we have here. I prefer one. You can choose either if you'd like. One would be that he heard the seraphs proclaim the holiness of God. And he recognizes that he could never proclaim God holy in that way. That he does not have the words of heaven, the language of heaven. He doesn't have the vocabulary to explain who God is and therefore he is a man of unclean lips and nobody around him can do that either. That is one option. I don't think it's the best option, but it is an option. The second option is the one that I'd prefer, is that his lips here, as we see all through Scripture, are an expression of what is in his heart. That he is saying, I not only sin But I am a sinner. Friend, listen carefully. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That your heart is full of sin. That you are, as Ephesians would say, by nature, Ephesians chapter 2, by nature a child of wrath. That you did not have to be taught as a child how to disobey. You did not have to be taught how to sin. It naturally comes out of you. And so I think it's best to see Isaiah here prophetically recognizing that his sin that was evidenced, his lips, his words were the evidence of an unclean heart. And I, see, I think we see that in the cleansing that we'll see here in just a minute. I think we see it evidenced that way. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What do you love? Just listen to what you talk about because people talk about what they love. Isaiah recognized that his heart was full of sin, and he was living in the middle of a people, in the midst of a people who had turned far from God, of people who had turned in their hearts from God as well. What was it that took Isaiah to that point? What was it that revealed his sin? It wasn't God saying, hey, do you remember that when you did that when you were five? Hey, remember when you were five and one hour old, you sinned in this way? Remember when you were five and two hours old and you sinned in these three ways? And going through his whole life to like five minutes before that, as all of us could? No. What was it that revealed Isaiah's sin? Well, he tells us, for I recognize my sin because... My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In contrast to Uzziah who had just died, Isaiah saw the King. He saw the Yahweh of the armies of heaven. The absolute pure and separate holiness of God. Because listen carefully, friend, the only way that we can have a proper view of ourselves is to have a proper view of who God is. Comparing themselves among themselves, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, they are not wise. Why? Because comparing themselves among themselves, they miss the whole point. Your holiness is not to be compared with some other human, it is to be compared with God alone. I played a lot of sports in high school and I played sports for a city travel league and we thought we were pretty big stuff because we were winning all of our games and so our coach wanted to teach us a lesson and so he took us to a national weekend tournament where he knew we were the lowest seed. I was in high school, I was 16 at the time, I started as a catcher, we had four or five pitchers, they would pitch anywhere from 80 to 85 miles an hour, they were pretty good. Until we got to that tournament, we realized those guys were all there pitching for the scouts and the major league teams and the colleges that were there, and they're pitching anywhere from 92 to 96 miles an hour. And there's a lot of difference between an an 82-mile-an-hour fastball and a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. It may not seem that much of a difference, but it sounds different. It looks different. There's a huge difference and we realized very quickly that we had entered into a totally different world because we'd been comparing ourselves against the wrong people. Friend, don't make the mistake of comparing yourself with others in your holiness. I'm not as bad as Sally down the street. I'm certainly not as bad as Jimmy. Jimmy. You kind of get this idea that I'm kind of good. I got it taken care of. I'm kind of okay. I mean, look at all these other jokers around me, right? I don't need to be that godly. I'm surely not that bad of a sinner. I'm a pretty moral person. I don't need God that much, right? Right? I haven't done that much wrong, but Isaiah here, the prophet of God, when confronted with the true nature of God's holiness, when confronted with the standard, the prophet of God becomes undone because he saw the king, the Lord of hosts. It is only when you see God for who he truly is that you see yourself for who you truly are. I'm convinced this is why a lot of people don't read their Bible on a regular basis is because when they do, they find themselves revealed as sinful. And rather than humbly accepting our sinful condition, rather than recognizing God's holiness and our sin, we decide to stop comparing ourselves with God And start comparing ourselves with others. When we see God in his holy essence, we are finally able to see ourselves in our true sinful condition. My friend, have you ever come to the place in your life where you've seen God in this light? Have you ever come to the place where you've realized how sinful you really are? Only one sin will keep you out of heaven. You say, God's kind of like got a scale in heaven, right? And my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. No, 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 no. God's holiness is like a beautiful pane of glass. That's perfect. And it only takes one sin to shatter that. It's not a scale, friend. It only takes one infraction. It only takes being born as a sinner to shatter that glass. It's like if we had a, a, a telephone that was wired. Do you remember those wired telephones with the curly wires? And, and they were attached to the wall and you had to, you know, if you talked on them too long, you'd get all, remember those, right? Some of you are like, what? Yeah. Go look at a newspaper sometime. Like, what is that? Okay. Um, it, it's like we had a phone that was hardwired from here to Florida. And the only way we can talk was through the wire. And it only takes one spot in any one way to cut that wire and the whole thing's cut off. It doesn't take a lot. It only takes one. And friend, if you've sinned once, you've cut yourself off from God. You've shattered God's perfect holiness. You won't see that if you compare yourself with others. You'll only see that if you compare yourself with God Himself. So Isaiah comes undone, but that there's hope because God provides hope. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. The agent of the cleansing was the burning coal. And he touched my mouth. The method of the cleansing was to deal with sin at its source. To cleanse, to burn, to clean, to wash. Don't see this burning as destruction, but rather see this burning as as having uh, a mix of metals that is impure, that when it's burned, it's purified, it's cleansed. How do you get pure water by boiling off, catching the steam, distilling that water and boiling off all the impurities? And so that coal touches Isaiah's lips, revealing to us that the cleansing must come at the source of sin. And then the pronouncement, which is why we're talking about his heart, your guilt is taken away and your sin, very important, your sin atoned Look at the end of verse 7. Very important word. Words are important. God cares about words. God wrote words individually. He says, your guilt is taken away. It's removed. And your sin is not just removed. It is atoned. The price is paid. The guilt removed is a proclamation of innocence. That Isaiah... He doesn't say your sin is gone. He says the guilt for your sin is gone. You have been pronounced innocent, even though you are not fully innocent. You've been pronounced innocent. It's the proclamation of innocence. And then the atonement is the payment for the sin that's been paid in full. And I think it's important to understand that the coal that touched the lips of Isaiah is not the event that cleansed him, but the event that represented his cleansing. I want you to to draw a connection here in our minds to the act of baptism, to where we would say baptism is not the moment in which a person is saved, it is the moment in which there is an outward act that reflects the inward Uh, the the guilt that's been taken away and the proclamation of innocence and the atonement that's been made at salvation, when a person embraces that by faith, they then show that with baptism. It's a visible representation of a spiritual cleansing. And so this coal was, was an act for Isaiah to say, or to see, that your sin is gone. But friend, if your sin needs to, be taken away. It's not as though you need to take a coal and and put it to your mouth, a piece of charcoal when it's hot right off the grill. It's not how you're saved. Any more than dipping below the water, having water poured over your head is the way that you're saved. Is that Isaiah was proclaimed innocent because of his proclamation of his own sin and God's status. I am a sinner, and God is my Savior. And thus to visually show that his sin was purged, the coal is taken from the sacrificial altar and the sacrifice and placed on the lips of Isaiah. And I want you to notice that it's only after Isaiah is made holy that the Lord speaks to him. This is the first time that God speaks in the passage and so we see Isaiah's mission look at verse 8 I saw the king and now I heard I heard my sins are have been atoned for my guilt is gone my relationship has been restored and what happens I hear the voice of God the voice of my master my Adonai saying Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? It's the call that God gives every one of his children. And he walks up to Matthew and Jesus says what? Follow me. And he walks up to Luke and he says what? Follow me. And friend, if you're not a Christian, there's a calling on your heart. You feel God drawing you and you sense the drawing hand of God that's pulling you to him. It's called the effectual call. God says, follow me. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, I, at this point, I, I, I picture, I don't know if it's just true, it's always dangerous to picture things in your mind about the Bible, but I picture Isaiah flat on his face, as many in the New Testament, when you see a picture of uh, a vision of, of God, people fall down. If you ever, you know, if somebody says, well, I saw God. Well, did you almost die? And were you flat on your face thinking you were going to die? No, he was really nice. Then you probably didn't see God, okay? Because every time in Scripture, when people see God, they're like, they, they think they're going to die. And they're flat on their face. And they're begging for their life. And God says, there's no one else in the room who, who will go for us. And Isaiah jumps up. And it's not a statement of, uh, you know, of location. Like I'm standing right here, God. Here I am. It's a statement of willingness. That it's God's responsibility to call, but it's man's responsibility to say yes. And Isaiah says, "Here I am. Send me." Notice that God did not say what the mission was. He did not say where the mission was. He did not say who the mission was to, nor did he say for how long it was fulfilled. Because when God calls you, he calls you to a life of discipling. He calls you to a life of following God. He calls you to a life of stepping in line and saying, that's my Adonai, that's my Lord, that's my master, and wherever he goes, I follow. Here am I. Send me. And so God gives him a commission. Look at verse 9. And God said, and he said, go and say to this people. Verses 9 and 10, I want you to see four aspects of Isaiah's mission. You could call it four aspects of Isaiah's call. Number one, God's mission for him was to go. Friend, listen carefully. God's call for his people, is not just to sit. There are times when we need to sit quietly and listen to the word of God as we're doing today. There are times when we need to be still and hear the voice of God through the scripture. But God's call of discipleship, God's call of personal discipleship and discipling, disciple-making is to go. You say, go where? I don't know. It may be to your job. To to your neighbor next door. It may be to the cashier who's checking you out. It may be to to the lady or the man who's waiting your table. It may be to your best friend who you've never shared your faith with. It may be to leave South Bend. It may be to... Go to England, or to Africa, or Hawaii. We have missionaries who are serving on the island of Yap. And it's a very difficult place, but if you've ever seen pictures of Yap, it is gorgeous, right? When we moved to South Bend over five years ago, the guy that I met with talking about insurance, I told him where we moved from, and he said, you move from the mountains of North Carolina to South Bend? I said, yeah, he said, I have one question, Why? I said, well, because God brought us here through the reading of Scripture and through the passions that God stirred in our hearts and through biblical counsel and through prayer, it became obvious that we're supposed to move to South Bend. And so that's where we went. And he said, you know, the best thing about South Bend is that everywhere you go to vacation, it's better than where you live. He said, where do you vacation if you live in Malibu? Where do you vacation if you live in a vacation destination? You're always disappointed. But we live here so we can always be excited. (laughs) Because God may call you to stay in South Bend. And you want to go. And your going is actually going here. Matthew. Chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you have to listen. I have all authority. I have God's authority. All authority, heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. As you're going. It's assumed that all followers of Christ follow. It means they go. So God tells Isaiah, go. Secondly, God's mission is to say, because just being an example isn't enough. Just living out the gospel isn't enough. You have to put a name to your life. And his name is Jesus. Go and tell. Acts 1 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. To go to say to this people because God's ministry is people. God did not come to redeem your pet, although I'm sure your pet's wonderful. Christ did not die for your beautiful house or for your fancy car. Christ died for the sins of the world without distinction, friends. Go and say to this people, Luke chapter 5, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Call them to repentance. Go and say to this people, fourthly, God's mission is simply to obey. Well, what does a Christian life look like? It looks like obedience to God. That's what it looks like. Well, what am I supposed to do? Well, just obey God. Well, what does God say? I'm so glad you asked. That's why we need to be reading this and studying this and listening to preaching of this. Because what is the Christian life made up of? It's made up of obedience. John 14, 20, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Amen. And so Isaiah's responsibility is simply to obey. You say, obey what? Look carefully. Tell these people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. Lest they turn and be healed. Isaiah, I want you to obey. I want you to go preach to these people. And God will use this truth however he sees fit. And in this case, I'm going to tell you how the people are going to respond. They're going to turn away from you. That Isaiah, your role in my kingdom is to be my preacher that nobody listens to. Isn't that great? You're going to go to the church and everybody's going to leave. You're going to preach the gospel and everybody's going to make fun of you. You're going to share the gospel and nobody's going to get saved. Because your role isn't to change people, it's just to be obedient. And when you see God's glory, there's only one response Yes, Lord. If that's what the King of hosts wants me to do, then that's my role. So Isaiah doesn't protest. He recognizes that he's going to be speaking to this people, meaning the children of Israel. And God says, I am going to bring the word to bear on their hearts, and they are not going to listen. I am going to harden their hearts, and they are going to harden their hearts, much like Pharaoh in the Old Testament in Exodus. Where Moses comes to Pharaoh, and God says, Pharaoh will reject me, but he will eventually let the people go, and he will do it for my glory. So he tells Isaiah, you are to go. And the people will not respond. They will harden their hearts and God will harden their hearts. You know, friends, God's never promised us numerical growth. We have a lot of empty seats in this building. Call that faith. Call it foolishness. I don't know what you call it. But there are a lot of empty seats in this building, right? Let's just be honest and have a family talk. If you're visiting, you're welcome to listen in, right? And there are some of us who are community who are longing for the day when all these pews will be filled, but the truth is, friend, we have no promise of that. God will build his church, but we are not guaranteed to see it in our lifetime in our eyes, with our eyes. That your responsibility is simply to be faithful. It's simply to obey and let God do what God does. God saves people. You can't save people. And maybe you've been carrying around a load of guilt your whole life because you've never led someone to the Lord. And you think that if you just witness hard enough and if you just, I've been given the gospel, I've been faithful, but I guess I'm not doing it right because nobody's getting saved and you feel guilty that you're not obeying God because people aren't being saved. Friend, listen carefully. Your responsibility is simply to be faithful to what God has asked you to do. Leave the results up to God. And God said, Isaiah, I want you to be faithful. Faithful. I want you to be faithful. Our responsibility is not to manipulate circumstances to generate a human desired outcome. Our responsibility is to be faithful to the word of God and let the chips fall where they may. And you say that's hard to hear. It was hard for Isaiah to hear as well, because look at verse 11. His only question was not, are you sure, God? Because <laughs> I'd really love to see just one person respond to my ministry well in my lifetime. Wouldn't that be great? No, he laments and he says, how long, O oh Lord, how long? It's not a complaint. It's a clarifying question. Look at verse 12. 11 and 12. And Jesus said, until the cities, or God says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Isaiah was to minister to the people of Israel knowing that they would reject, knowing that their hearts would harden until the nation was destroyed. My dad was a church planting missionary when I was 10 years old. We left everything we knew to replant, revitalize a church in Rock Hill, South Carolina, where the church was 10, 11, 12 people, depending on the Sunday, and seven of them were our family because we had five kids in our family. A Sunday school class was us. Our Sunday school teacher, I think, was 150 years old. She invented the flannel graph, and she talked about Moses like she knew him back in the day, right? After about six months, my dad became very disheartened with the ministry because nothing was going right. we had gotten kicked out of the building we were in because the, the Mexican restaurant next door wanted was applying for a liquor license, and at that point you could not sell alcohol if you were within 300 feet of a church building, was the law there in South Carolina. And so they evicted us so that the Mexican restaurant next door could could have a liquor license, and so we had gotten kicked out of our building. We had nowhere to meet. We had three or four people in our church, two of them were very close to heaven, and my dad called his dear Christian friend, and he said, how long? How long? I didn't know it. I thought we we're having the best time in the world. I was a 10-year-old kid. I thought, the, I thought when we we're sitting on the curb in front of the church building that no longer had the sign, and we're playing in the parking lot, I thought this is the best church day ever. long? And very wisely, his Christian friend said, Just stay until the money runs out. You've got nothing to lose. God's called you there. Just stay till you literally, physically can't stay anymore. He said, Got to provide for my family. Just stay until the money runs out. 21 years later, my dad retired from a healthy church. That has sent missionaries to countries all over this world. That has resulted in young men and older men being called to the ministry. That is a result of Christian laymen loving God and serving the church. Because my dad didn't say, I'm done. He said, how long? My dad's my hero. How long? And many of you have the same question in your heart right now, don't you? You're, you're in a station of life where you say, God, How long? This really hurts. Maybe literally, physically. Maybe spiritually. And God says, until I'm done. Until I'm done. The last thing I want to show you is the hope that he gives. Look at verse 13. If you're not reading carefully, you'll miss it. He says, and though a tenth remain." Remain. It'll be cleansed again with fire, like a tabernacle or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. God says, We get a little word from that word remain. We get the word remnant. He says, I'm going to leave some people who are doing what's right, and you may not know they're there, but I'm going to keep, I'm going to preserve my people. Because in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus makes the promise I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so just be faithful, Isaiah. There are people who will, who will be doing what's right. There's a remnant there. It's a small group. Just be faithful. And in essence, what God says in verse 13 is he says, Isaiah, how about you do what you do and I'll do what I do? How about you be faithful and you be obedient And you let me be God because the hardest truth in all of life, as we've said over and over again, is to recognize that there is a God and I am not him. And the call is just to obedience. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is that as we minister, friend, God has called us to be obedient and be faithful and let the chips fall where they may. As we close, I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to the New Testament. Look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, just listen carefully. I'll read the entire passage. But if you do have a Bible, I'd love for you to see it in front of you. John chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 27. You say, Pastor, I've been, I've been doing my best to minister faithfully. But Nobody's listening. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say then? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered, and others said an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Will now the ruler of this world be cast out? And I am, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. All the people that God's given to me will look to me. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Then he, though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe. God, if you would just speak to me, I believe. No, you would not. Because it happened right there. God opened up the throne room of heaven again and called down and said, I'm going to glorify myself through Jesus Christ. And they said, was that thunder? Was that an angel? We'll reject him. Verse 38, so the word will be spoken by the prophet Isaiah and it might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what is heard from us and what has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they would not believe again because Isaiah said, listen carefully, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. and turn, and I would heal them. Every time you share a gospel message and people reject, you share in the ministry of Christ. Isaiah said these things, verse 41, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43 sums up why. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What happens when you see God's holiness on display? What happens in your heart when you see God for for who he truly is? You respond to the holiness and glory of God rather than the glory of man. I respond by obeying and living out my faith and obedience not manipulating things to my own circumstances or staying quiet. But even though people reject, I still obey. I'm still faithful. These are your options as you follow Isaiah's pattern and seeing the holiness of God. Either you will be consumed with the glory of man and you will disobey. Or you will be consumed with the glory of God. And you will live your life in obedience and let the chips fall where they may. Be consumed with God's holiness and God's glory. So that we will love his glory more than the glory of man. And we'll live out our lives in obedience to his call. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that your word has been revealed to us in this way. Your word is so clear. You've loved us enough to show it to us. I do pray that you would help us to live lives of obedience, that we would live lives of faithfulness, that we would not be concerned with us generating an outcome, but with simply being faithful to you. May we listen to your call to go. To say, to go and say to people, according to your word and be obedient, may we be consumed by your glory and your holiness, so that the only opinion that matters is yours.